0: Good afternoon, everyone, please open up your Bible to Genesis chapter one, and we'll look at verse number one here, Genesis chapter one. Great to see everybody here this afternoon. I know we have more guests here with us. Thank you for being here. As we continue to study from the Holy Scriptures and as we begin or continue our study with popular questions that people have. Genesis 1 and verse number 1, the Bible says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's how the Bible begins. And this verse sets the tone for the rest of the book. In the beginning God. The Bible makes it very clear. Moses makes it very clear as he penned this that God is God has always been and will always be, in the beginning, God. And one can never talk too much about the creator of the heavens, the creator of the heavens and the earth. God is amazing. God is good. God is holy. God is righteous. God is love. And talking about him, it never gets old. In Romans chapter 11 and verse number 33, there's a passage here or a verse here from Paul. In Romans chapter 11 and verse number 33 where Paul said this, Romans 11 and verse number 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. I believe Paul is helping us to to see just how amazing our God truly is. I'm thankful that during this series of questions and answers that we're having this month that we have received from people in the community and from a variety of other places, that questions pertaining about God have come up and that we have this opportunity to study the word of God and to learn more about our father in heaven. Now, our goal is to always answer Bible questions with Bible answers. And so I encourage you to follow along as we begin our study tonight, as we look about or look at some questions pertaining to God. There were four big questions that were asked. We only have time for three. All right. The sermon in the morning was three pages of notes. This is four, so we definitely can't do four, all right? So there's three questions, and we're going to move. So get ready to go right now, all right? So the first question is this, and I invite you to study along and follow along as we go through uh, these questions here. Question number one, why was God not born? That's a great question, isn't it? And it's a question from someone uh, who was young and has these, this question about God, and it really it's a question about the nature of God. And I'm thankful that young people are thinking about God, that young people are having these kinds of questions. As parents, we're going to have to be able to answer these questions, and more than ever, uh, young people are being attacked at college and probably even in high school about doubting what the Bible has to say. Does God really exist? And what about these kinds of questions? And so let's talk a little bit about God. I want to begin just by making some basic facts as we think about the God of the Bible the, uh, who created the heavens and the earth. Number one, we need to understand that God is eternal. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 makes that very clear. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is eternal, which means that he has no beginning and he has no end. That's hard for us to fathom, and yet that's what the Bible teaches. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, look at Deuteronomy. 33 and verse number 27. And Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse number 27, we see that this is how God is described. Deuteronomy chapter 33 Verse number 27. The eternal God is a dwelling place and underneath the everlasting arms, and he drove out the enemy from before you and said, Destroy. Notice that Moses said he described God as the eternal God. So God has no beginning and he has no end. Look at Genesis chapter 17 and verse number 1. From Genesis 17 and verse number 1, we see the power of God, that God is omnipotent, that he's all powerful. In Genesis 17 and in verse number one, the interaction between God and Abraham in Genesis 17, verse number one, we see how God is described in this particular setting. Genesis chapter 17, and verse number one. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God almighty. Notice how God described himself. I am God almighty. And so God is powerful in nature. Look in Psalm 139. I want to begin in verse number one, and we'll just go through these fairly quickly here. That God is omnipresent. We see his presence is everywhere and that there's nothing that can be hidden from the Lord. In Psalm 139, beginning at verse number one, notice what the psalmist said, he Pertaining to God. And we're just looking at some basic attributes of God. And certainly this will help us to understand uh, that God is distinct and different from us, and that indeed his nature is different. In Psalm 139 and verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. And so we see the omnipresence of the Lord and learning more about God. He's omnipotent, omnipresent. He's eternal. And we also see as we open up the word of God, let me click this and see if it comes up. We'll get here eventually. There it is, that he's personal in nature. When you go back to the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we also read about the fact that he created man, that man was created in the beginning. And in Genesis 1 and verse number 26, the Bible says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Man did not come by some swamp or some uh, slime in the beginning, or wherever the case may be, as many people allege. Man was created. beginning notice that God created man in his image and I think this is certainly helping us to see that the God of the Bible is personal in nature he desires a relationship with man we are created in his image and God is the creator of all things I think this point is being made very clearly and yet it's something for us to remember that that God created all things and that becomes important as we think about this question why was God not born. You think about all things. God created time, space, and matter. And the universe had a marked beginning. It's very, uh, it's, uh, most people understand. And and science has made this very clear that the universe is not eternal, that it had a marked beginning. And when you look in the Bible, we understand that God is behind all of this. From a book that I've used in times past called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, the author says this, that there are five pieces of scientific evidence that have been discovered that prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the universe did indeed have a beginning. The second law of thermodynamics is one piece of evidence, the fact that the universe Universe is expanding is a second piece of evidence. Radiation from when everything was first created is a third piece that he mentions. Great galaxy seeds is a fourth. And then number five, Einstein's theory of general relativity. Now I know I'm just giving you guys these things and you may be thinking, Well, what's number four? What's number five? What's all of these? Well, if you're interested in a Bible study, you let me know. We can go in more detail uh, in this. But here's what I want you to see. That science has demonstrated that, indeed, the universe had a marked beginning. And whatever caused the universe to come into existence had to be outside of time, space, and matter. It would have to be greater. And whatever caused the universe to come into existence would have to be beyond these things greater. And would have to have the intelligence to do all of this. And the Bible makes it very clear. Uh, That is God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so as we learn about the nature of God, what we see is that God is eternal. And so God never has, he never had a beginning. And that's hard for us to fathom because we measure everything by time. What time is it? How long has Ben been going to preach tonight? We measure things by time, right? Uh, That's how we live. But God has no beginning and he has no end. He is the uncaused cause he is the uncaused cause, and I think all of this helps us to answer the question, why was he not born because he's eternal, that he's the cause behind everything he is just he just is in Exodus chapter three, when God called Moses to go to his people, remember Moses had some questions, he had some doubts, so, Oh well, you know, what if they asked me you know who sent me, or what am I supposed to say in Exodus chapter three and verse number fourteen. Well, let's look at verse number 13. Then Moses said to God, behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me To you. And so, this idea that I am that I am, the self existing one, is helping us to learn more about the nature of God. It's important to understand as we think about God uh, that He is not uh, flesh and blood as we are. God is not flesh and blood. Jesus described the Father as spirit. In John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, remember as Jesus was speaking to the Samaritan woman, in John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, as we use this to talk about worship, there's something else we need to understand. We see the nature of God. John 4, verse 23, but an hour is coming. "...and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers." God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so we learn some more about the nature of God, that he is not flesh and blood. In Luke chapter 24, look at verse number 37. After the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus would appear to his disciples. And in this uh, interaction between uh, uh, Jesus and the disciples... When they saw him, they were initially startled. They were afraid because they thought that they were seeing a spirit. But in Luke chapter 24, verse number 37, Jesus is going to make it clear to them that his spirit is not flesh and blood. Luke 24 and verse 37, but they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself touch me and see here it is for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And so I think this helps us to understand more about the nature of God, that God is spirit and nature, that he is eternal, that he always has been and always will be, that he is the one behind everything that we see. This idea of God being spirit, God is non-physical or material in nature. And while there are passages in the Bible that speak about the ears of the Lord are open or his hands uh, it talks about his ears or his hands or his eyes are attentive or open to the uh, to his people uh, that's figurative language uh, and the word is called anthropomorphism. It's figurative language which helps us to understand that God who he is and how he uh, interacts with with his people but that's not saying that he is flesh and blood. God is spirit and nature and so as we look at this question and understand Some things about God. Why was God not born? Because God has always been. He's eternal in nature. He's the uncaused cause. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's behind everything. And He is the one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's the cause behind all that we see. And there's nothing greater than Him. There's nothing beyond Him. There's nothing greater than Him. He exists necessarily. Now, that's a lot in just a few minutes of time if you have more questions about that then we can talk more about it, but I think that answers that question, and I, I just wanted to give you some more information as we talk about uh, the nature of God. The second question I want to address here, and as we're addressing these questions, the second one in particular, uh, there's a lot of things that could be said about this, and there's a lot of people in our world uh, and even here right now that, that are hurting and sometimes have questions about why certain things happen, or why does God allow certain things to happen, and this question really goes to that to that point. Someone asked the question, why does God allow evil?" We just saw that he's powerful, that he's all-knowing, that his presence is, uh, is everywhere. So why does God allow evil things or or bad things to happen? That's the argument that people often throw out. He is powerful, so why doesn't he just stop these evil things that we see? Well, I think there are a couple of thoughts pertaining to the question of evil that we need to address. One is what do people mean when they say evil? Why does God allow bad things or evil things to happen? What exactly are people talking about when they speak about these evil things? I think there could be a couple of things. One, some may be referring to the moral evil or sin that they see that has taken place in the world by people who are hurt by others. I think that's what some are talking about. Or they may be referring to natural evil, which involves suffering and death, not even by natural events. And so sometimes people may be talking about a variety of things when it comes to this problem of evil. Whatever a person's worldview may be, uh, they're always going to have to address the problem of evil. And what I mean by that, it, people have a lot of different views. Uh, there are people who are atheists. There are people who are agnostic. There are obviously Christians and there are uh, people. And, uh, different religions, whatever it is that a person believes or follows, they will always have to answer this question the question of evil. I think sometimes people think that when they bring up the question of evil to the Christian, that they have now defeated Christianity. That there's nothing that we can say, that the Bible must not be true because there's evil and God is love. And if God is love and He's powerful, then why is there still evil today? Well, a couple of things we need to keep in mind. Number one, everyone has to address the problem of evil. Eastern pantheistic religions like Buddhism or Hinduism, they often deny that evil exists. Atheists believe that there's no good, evil, or justice because humans are merely evolved animals. Yet they often become upset when religious people in the name of God commit evil. But they have no reason to get upset if there's objective standard of good. Now, Christianity believes that evil is real, and we need to explain how evil and God coexist. And I believe that Christianity is the only worldview that can adequately address this problem. Whatever a person's view may be, whether they're atheist, agnostic, Christian, Hinduism, Buddhism, whatever the case may be, we're all going to have to answer or address this question of evil. And I just think it's important for us to understand that just because people may have questions about this or just because we see wicked things taking place— those things do not disprove God. When you really think about this, there can be no objective evil unless there is an objective good. Who gets to decide this idea of what is evil and what is not evil? And there can be uh, there can be good without evil, but there can't be evil without good, and there can't be objective good without God. And so this idea of evil, evil cannot disprove God. C.S. Lewis. It was once an atheist thought that evil disproved God, but eventually would change his mind. He realized that he was stealing from God in order to argue against him. And he said this, as an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of a straight line? If, if there is no standard, that's the argument that he's trying to make, that uh, the, the universe he saw was cruel and unjust, but how had he got the idea of a straight line? What, I, what was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? The point that he's making is, if people are going to start saying, well, that's evil, then there has to be some type of standard by which we begin to measure things. And so when we think about this idea of evil... There has to be a standard greater than ourselves. And God is that standard. God is the standard when it comes to what is good. And so as we think about the problem of evil, why does God allow evil? I think there's a couple of things that we need to say. Uh, People, number one, are very quick to blame God when they see something that they may describe as being evil. God is the one. God is the problem. He is the one that often gets the blame. But there's one big thing you need to think about when we think about evil. And the big thing I think we all need to consider is the fact that we all have free will. We all have free will. And this is what we find from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 2, in the book of Genesis, and it's interesting because the, the topic or subject that we got the most questions from are from the book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis is a foundation, really. If there's a misunderstanding with some things in Genesis, that can have a ripple effect with some of the things that we understand about God and his nature and even man. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, remember God as he spoke to to Adam in verse number 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So as we talk about the problem of evil, a big thing that we have to address is the idea of a free will. And when you think about the subject of free will, free will is what makes love possible. And it's also what makes evil possible. And so I think one of the ways to answer this question is by the fact that God has created us with free will. And by granting free will, God made, made evil possible. Yet it was men who made evil actual through the abuse of their free will. And so as we think about evil, God created man with free will. So that possibility was there. You look at Luke chapter 13, and I mentioned this last week, and I want to just go back to this as we talked, to, talked about suffering, because I just think, and there's lots of other examples, but suffering and evil I think sometimes kind of go hand in hand, and people bring these things up. In Luke 13 and verse number one, we see the, the situation with Pilate. It says in verse one of Luke chapter 13, now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. This man, Pilate, had done some wicked deeds and other people were affected because of his free will, because of his choices that he made. And what we see here is that man Because we do have free will, there is that possibility of good things and also bad things. Now, somebody may say, well, wait a second. I know that, but God is powerful. Couldn't he just intervene and stop these situations so that we wouldn't have to experience these things? Well, think about a couple of things. If he did that, would you be okay if he began with you? Because we can think about evil and what other people do and bad things that people do, but when we do wicked things... Would it be okay for us if God began with us and stopped what we were doing? You see, it can be easy to look at others as a problem when it comes to sin, but we have sinned as well. Romans 3 and verse 23. And this idea of God stopping or taking away our free will, it would also take away the ability for us to love because love is a choice. And so when we think about the problem or the question of evil, we need to go back to the subject of free will. And there's more things that I think we could say about this, but that's probably one of the biggest things that we can discuss. The issue is dealing with the issue of, of free will. And we need to be careful, and I said this last week, as we think about God and about suffering and wicked things that happen, we need to remember that the devil is alive and well is too, and that he is a source of evil. And people often blame God for bad things while they ignore the devil. People often will blame God instead of actually acknowledging that people have to make choices. And sometimes choices that people make can be bad in nature. When it comes to evil, we also need to make room for time and chance. And I think this is one of the hardest things that we've discussed from Ecclesiastes 9 and 11, that time and chance happen to all. And while I'm going through this rather quickly... In this brief period of time, I certainly don't want to come across as being insensitive in nature because there are a lot of bad things that happen in life. And there are people who make horrible choices that have an impact upon innocent people. And we see this every day. Uh, we experience this. We know people who have sadly have been impacted because of the wicked choices of others. And so I certainly don't want to come across as being insensitive. But one of the things we have to understand is that God has made us with free will. And that gives us the possibility to, to, to love and also the possibility for people To do wicked things. Now, if you have more questions about that, we certainly can dive into detail more uh, if that is not clear. But that is what I believe the Bible teaches about this question here. There's one more question I want us to consider, and then we'll wrap this up. And this is the question of sin, and it pertains to God. Uh, The question that someone raised was Are all sins equal? This is a question that many people have, and sometimes many people talk about. It is often the case that you'll hear people say a sin is a sin is a sin. And in a sense, that is correct, that sins, that all sins are equal. The Bible makes it very clear that sin uh, is wicked in the eyes of God, that it is a violation of the will of God. Look over in 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 4. And as we talk about this issue, sin is something that a lot of people don't talk about at all. There are many congregations where sin is not preached on or anything like that. We need to talk about this because sin is a violation of the will of God. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 4, the Bible is clear, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. The Bible is clear that sin is a violation of the will of God. In Romans chapter 6 and verse number 23, Romans chapter 6 and verse number 23, listen to what Paul said here as he spoke about sin. Romans chapter 6, verse number 23, notice what Paul said here. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All sin will separate one from being in fellowship with God, if not repented of. And that point needs to be made very clear. That in a sense, all sins are equal, that they are a violation of the will of God. And if not repented of, uh, sin will cause us to be eternally separated from our Father in heaven. Do we all agree with that? We understand the serious nature of sin, that in a sense, yes, all sins are equal. And yet I will say this, that at times there is some danger with this idea that a sin is a sin is a sin. Uh, a preacher once said this as he was talking about this, that sometimes people have used that mindset to justify certain behavior, that a sin is a sin is a sin. So if, if everything is all the same and everything's all equal, then it just doesn't really matter. And certainly that is a flaw, That's a terrible mentality to have. And the example that he used, I thought was pretty good because he said, think about the man who commits adultery in his heart. Matthew chapter five and verse 28, what does that say? Matthew five and verse 28 says, but I say to you, so let's go back up and look at verse number 27. You have heard that it was said, you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so he uses this example of a man who has committed adultery in his heart, which is wrong, which is sinful in nature, which is to be avoided, lusting after another woman. And he said, well, this man who commits adultery in his heart may think to himself and say, well, a sin is a sin is a sin. So I guess I'll just go ahead and engage in the actual act of sex with a person. Well, that mindset is wrong, too. The first mindset of lusting after another woman is wrong and sinful in nature. And this second mentality or attitude that this man has is also wrong and sinful in nature. But the point that he was trying to make is, after all, if all things are equal, then it doesn't really matter. Well, we need to be careful with that. And again, this man was wrong for lusting in his heart, and he's also wrong with this idea that all sin is equal. Some sins are greater than others. And I want to explain by that what I mean. And you think about the civil law, there are certain actions that are going to be more serious than others. And I think we understand that. And I want to give you some examples where the Bible, I believe, makes this clear. Again, I want you also to understand that sin must be repented of. And sin in the eyes of God is a violation of his will. And yet we do find some cases where we see this emphasis pertaining to certain actions or to certain sins. Look over in John chapter 19. In John chapter 19, during the trial of Jesus here, John chapter 19, we find that Jesus, in John, John chapter 18, this is where the story really begins. In John chapter 18, we find Jesus was with Caiaphas. In John 18 and verse number 13, the Bible says that they led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. And so we're gonna see this interaction between Jesus and Caiaphas. In verse 15, it says, Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now, that disciple was known high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. We continue along with this story here where Peter is going to, uh, to eventually, uh, betray Jesus in verse number 19, it says the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him. I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them they know what I said when he had said this one of the officers standing by one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus saying is that the way you answer the high priest Jesus answered him if i have spoken wrongly testify of the wrong But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So we see this interaction here taking place in verse number 28 of John 18. It says, then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore, Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? In the process of time, Jesus is going to to be given to to Pilate. In John chapter 19, and I'm kind of giving you this background to understand what's going on. Look over in John chapter 19. In John chapter 19, beginning in verse uh, number 10, John chapter 19, Pilate is with Jesus. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Now, here's what I want you to see. He said, for this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Notice the language that Jesus said that the one who had delivered him to Pilate, and I believe he's going back to Caiaphas here, he said, the one that has delivered me to you has the greater sin. And so that word greater there is being used as a comparison. Caiaphas had the greater sin as compared to Pilate. Now sin is going to keep people separated from God, if not repented of. And and we're trying to make that point clear, but I want you to see that Jesus said that Caiaphas had the greater sin. He had the weightier blame and fault. And so when we think about this question of are all sins equal, I think it is important that we understand how this language is being used. Yes, all sins are a violation of the will of God and all sins could potentially lead to death if not repented of. But notice that Jesus said that Caiaphas had the greater sin. And this is not the only example that we read about. Turn over in Exodus chapter 32, where we see this distinction between certain actions. In Exodus chapter 32, verses 30 and 31, I want you to notice what happened here in the days of Moses, when the people built the golden calf. And I'm gonna catch up with my slides here. We've already made this point. That at times, if not careful, there can be a danger with saying a sin is a sin is a sin. And so let me catch up with the slides here. So you guys can follow along with uh, with this with the screen this idea that some sins are greater in the eyes of god that 's the first example we just saw John nineteen The second example is in exodus chapter thirty two This is the case here in exodus thirty two where the people of God made the the golden calf. And I just want you to take notice, notice of this language here that is being used by Moses. In verse number 30 and 31, the Bible says, On the next day Moses said to the people, You yourselves have committed a great sin. Notice that he said, You've committed a great sin. And now I'm going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin." Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has committed a great sin and they have made a God of gold for themselves. What's the point I want you guys to see? Well, Moses seems to be making a distinction with this particular behavior when he said that they had committed a great sin. And again, this word great is being, as a, com- a comparison that's being made. And so there seems to be some distinction here. Whether what Jesus said, you co- he committed the greater sin and Moses saying that they had committed a great sin. What about in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter five? Remember 1 Timothy chapter five and verse number eight. 1 Timothy chapter five and verse number eight, where Paul, as he's writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter five, and he's talking about different responsibilities. First Timothy chapter five and verse number eight, he said, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith. He's talking about a Christian and one who does not provide for his own and for his own household. He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. There seems to be a distinction that's being made here. This idea of worse is is a comparison term. So how can the person's actions in this verse uh, be worse if all things are relatively equal? Now, Again, I don't want anyone leaving here saying, uh, misunderstanding what I'm saying. Sin is going to separate us from God. Sin is a violation of, of the will of God. And sin will keep us out of heaven if we do not repent of our sins. And do the will of God. And while one may be more guilty of pushing the sinful conduct, uh, sin is still going to keep us out of, uh, separated from God, unless we handle that sin correctly. But I do want you to see that there is some distinction at times where Jesus said that Caiaphas had the greater sin. Moses spoke about the great sin, and now Paul is saying that individuals who conduct themselves in this manner are worse than an unbeliever. And I think there are some principles that we can use as we think about this subject. Are all sins equal? Number one, I want you to think about this: the idea of unintentional sin versus sin that is defiant in nature. When you go back to the Old Testament in the days of of Moses, here go back to Numbers chapter fifteen, and I think this will help us to understand what the distinction that should be made as we think about this subject here. In Numbers chapter fifteen, beginning in verse number twenty seven, and the the Old Testament, we see this distinction between unintentional sins as to a sin that may have been defiant in nature. They're still both sin, and they both need to be handled correctly, and yet there is a distinction here. In Numbers chapter 15 and verse number 27, the Bible says, also if one person sins unintentionally, some translations may say unwittingly, then he shall offer a one-year-old female goat." For a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray. He sins unintentionally. Make an atonement for him that he may be forgiven. You should have one law for him who does anything unintentionally. So I want you to see how Moses is making a distinction with this idea of unintentional sin. Still needs to be addressed, but he is making this distinction you shall have one law for him verse 29 who does anything unintentionally for him who is native among the sons of Israel and for the alien who sojourns among them but so here's a contrast the person who does anything defiantly some translations may may say in a presumptive manner or high hand. I think that's talking about the idea of pride. But the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord and that person shall be cut off from among his people. The point I want you to see here is that a distinction seems to be made with unintentional sin versus sin that is defiant in nature. I know what he says. I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to do what I want to do. And and while both are wrong, there does seem to be this distinction that is being made. And so I think this principle should help us consider as we think about this question here. A sin not repented of is going to keep us separated from God. And we need to make sure that we correct our sinful behavior. And yet this principle, I think, will help us to give a little bit more insight as we think about this idea, are all sins equal? And I also think we need to think about consequences. There are some actions Where there will be bigger ramifications or consequences. I think about James chapter 3 and verse number 1. James chapter 3 and verse number 1. And I want you to notice what James said here in James chapter 3 and verse number 1. And this is a scary passage It's a scary passage for me, especially with what I'm doing at this very moment. But it's a passage that we all need to really think about. In James chapter 3 and verse number 1, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Well, he's making a point here that the one who is teaching, the one who has this opportunity to teach and to lead people, he says, you better be very careful here. Because you will incur a stricter judgment. And again, there seems to be this distinction that is being made. Teaching God's word is serious business. And there are ramifications with what is taught. And so the one who is teaching really needs to understand that they need to be very careful with how they teach because they will incur a stricter judgment. And again, I think there's some distinction that's being made. 1 John chapter 3. In verse number 15, first John chapter three and verse number 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The man who has this type of heart is a man who is in sin. This is a a sinful heart, a sinful mentality of the the brother who hates his his brother. Now, he may suffer no consequences in this life, but he will still face hell on the judgment unless his heart changes. But think about the man who commits the actual act of murder. We recognize that there will be greater consequences immediately like going to prison. And if we can understand that, I think we can understand this idea of a distinction that's being made at times in the scriptures with respect to sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, remember the brother who was caught in adultery and the behavior that this man was engaged in. Paul told that congregation in Corinth, you need to withdraw yourself from this man immediately. This man is living a life in sin. He's not repenting of his sin. He's not listening. Don't even eat with this man. You separate yourself immediately from this individual. And that certainly is what they needed to do. And it's what we may need to do at times as well. And yet at times, like in Jude, verse number 20 through 23, we see, I think, a distinction with how certain cases need to be handled. In some cases, like in in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Church discipline, church withdrawal was absolutely necessary. And yet in Jude, verse number 20, I think we can see some distinction that may need to be made at times. He said in verse number 20, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And notice what he said here. Have mercy on some who are doubting save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. All I want you to see here is that at times a distinction may need to be made with a brother in Christ and even what is done. The brother in Christ in First Corinthians chapter 5, Paul said this is what needs to be done immediately. He's not responding, and yet at times there may be another brother who may be struggling with something or doing something that is sinful in nature that is obviously going to need some correction and some teaching, but it may not be, may not go to that point of being, uh, of withdrawing from him completely. And so there are consequences at times when it comes to certain behavior or certain sinful behavior. Certainly the sin needs to be corrected and needs to be repented of. And so when we think about this idea of sin being equal, Sin obviously is going to keep us separated from God. And yet these principles, I think, are also important to help us understand. And I'll just say this. Some sins are more destructive. Uh, I think about Matthew chapter 18 and verse number 6. The words of Jesus here in Matthew chapter 18. Again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying, well, this sin is not really a big deal. And he's saying that it's okay if you do this sin. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that we see some distinction being made. In the scriptures. In Matthew chapter 18, in verse number 6, we'll start in verse number 5, Jesus said, And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, listen to this, to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, I think when you read what Jesus just said here, that a distinction should be made. This is a scary passage. And when you think about a sin that may be private in nature, that's still wrong and needs to be repented of, as opposed to living in such a way where we cause others to stumble, we can see that there is a distinction at times with how destructive certain behavior can be. And so I think this is another principle that we need to think about as we think about are all sins equal? Now, I've said a lot here. Maybe somebody has some questions here. And I went through three slides to go through all of this. And I just want to make sure that I'm clear. Sin is a violation in the will of God. We all get that, right? And, And sin can keep us out of heaven. It can keep us separated from fellowship with God. And yet, when you look in the Bible, you see this language of comparison where Jesus said, that Caiaphas had the greater sin and this comparison that's being made of the great sin in the days of Moses as opposed to other behavior. And so thinking about all of these things, I think, should help us to have a better understanding as we consider this topic of sin and this idea of being, of sin being equal in nature. Yes, in a sense, sin is, is equal because it's a violation of the will of God. And at the same time, these passages that we just looked at, and there's many more There's many more that we could look at. Help us to see some more distinction that may need to be be made. All sin is wrong, and sin is damaging. And we should always do our best to avoid sin at every cost. God is holy, and he is righteous, and he is just, and he is our creator. And that's why we need to avoid sin, and that's why we need to serve him. These questions about God, I've gone through this very quickly, and I've preached a very long time tonight. And we've only touched the surface. Well, these questions about God are really powerful. Understanding the nature of God is a big deal because God is, he exists, and we need to follow him and believe in him. We need to know that we are made in his image and that he desires a relationship with us. And he desires to save us from our sins and to lavish us with his grace through his son, according to Ephesians chapter one. And so as we talk about God, And really all of these questions that we're addressing this month, it needs to be more than just kind of a question and answer. What are we going to do with all this information? As We talk about baptism as we did this morning for those who have not been baptized. What are you going to do with that information? And as we talk about God tonight with the information that we've learned, it's not enough just to say, okay, here's a question, here's an answer, but how is this going to impact our lives? Well, hopefully this will change us or draw closer to God and recognize his power and majesty, and recognize the serious nature of sin, and that God is still in control even when bad things happen in this world. Hopefully these questions and answers will help us to draw closer to our Father in heaven. And if you have not obeyed the gospel, hopefully these questions and answers will help you to make the decision to become a follower, a disciple, a Christian, and to put on Christ through baptism. If we can help you out with that, We invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing.